Well, if you uh, have your, your copy of God's Word, go ahead and pull that out. Or if you have one of the, the journals, we are in the book of Micah, a minor prophet. And minor does not mean it's an unimportant prophet. It just means it's a smaller prophet in the book, uh, in, in the Old Testament, as compared to Isaiah or Jeremiah or Lamentation, somewhere like that. <clears throat> and we will be working our way through this through this prophetic book um, through the end of Advent. So Advent starts next week, uh, believe it or not. And so um, we'll be working our way through this book over that time period. So, so we'll be in Micah chapter 1, the whole chapter. And let me read that for us. <clears throat> this is God's Word. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morsheth. In the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from His holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of His place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under Him. And the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters pour down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. And from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath. Weep not at all in Beth la Afra. Roll yourselves in the dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, in nakedness and shame, the inhabitants of Zanan. Do not come out do not come out. The lamentation of Beth Azel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Morath wait anxiously for good because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lashish. It, it was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion. For in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore you shall give parting gifts to Morsheth Gath. The houses of Akzib shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Mershah. The glory of Israel shall come to Adalam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. This is God's word. It's entirely true and it's given to us in love. Let me pray for us. Father, we are thankful for Your Word. We're even thankful for Your Word when it's hard to hear, as these words from Micah will be. So God, I pray that You would help us to be attentive. Help us to be attentive to the God who loves us so deeply uh, that He will come to judge us even, to draw us back. 
And so we pray all of these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, in the, in the, we, we just got out of the Gospel of Mark, for some of you who may be visiting. And so we were, we, we were asking the question of the Gospel of Mark, who is Jesus? And now we're asking another question. Uh, and this question is, who is God? Who is God? It's a short question, but really overwhelming in its scope. So maybe when you hear that question, maybe the first uh, question that you have about that particular question is, what God are you talking about? Is it the God of Judaism? Is it the God of Islam? Is it one of the hundreds of gods of Hinduism that you're talking about? Or is it the God that you've created in your own head? A God who is tolerant. A God who is changing with the times. A God who is accommodating. Maybe a a, a gentle grandpa-like figure sitting in his rocking chair on the front porch of heaven, smiling as his grandkids do whatever it is that makes them happy. Who is God? In his popular book, The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer says this, He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He goes on to say this, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. And the reason why we we move towards our mental image of God is because that mental image of God that we have created tends to be a safe God. A God who allows you to live however you want. A God who is hands-off only until you need Him to be hands-on and so you can call upon Him when those things happen. A God who is passive. So the idea of God as judge doesn't sit well with us. And the reason being is we don't believe we're bad enough to be judged. We don't think we deserve it. And we see that in God's people in Micah's prophecy here. They think they know who God is. They think they have a pretty clear picture of who God is in relationship to them. And and their posture is is really clear in chapter 3, verse 11. And Micah explains how how they are viewing their God. When he says, yet they lean on the Lord and say, this is what they say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? Is not the Lord for us? No disaster shall come upon us. Now that's chapter 3, verse 11. This is after Micah has said, disaster is coming and it is going to be awful. And they're still living in their own head, saying, God's for us. He won't let this happen to us. Their attitude is, God will only do us good, no matter what. God would never do to them what He does to the pagan nations. And maybe you've come in here this morning with that same posture. Maybe you thought for so long that God would never do you harm, even though you neglect His Word. 
You neglect him in prayer. You uh, neglect the gathering of his body, the church. You walk in ways that are in opposition uh, to who he is and how he has called you to live as Christians. And yet you still say, no disaster shall come upon me. God will always do me good. Until he doesn't. And you're left wondering, what the heck is going on? Why am I experiencing this sort of suffering and this sort of grief? Micah's name actually means, who is like God? That's what his name means. And the entirety of his book will answer this question for us. And chapter 1 begins by saying three things about what he is like that are important for us to understand today, right, right at the outset of this prophecy. And these are in your worship guide if you're taking notes. One is that God is the God who speaks to His people. Two, He is the God who judges His people. And then three, He is the God who calls His people to change. God who speaks, the God who judges, and the God who calls His people to change. So first, the God who speaks to His people There are several details in verse 1 that help us see the bigger picture of the book. The book is is kind of setting setting the message up for us, giving the historical context and such. Um, It's a a book written, uh, Micah says, concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. The better translation there would not be concerning, but but would be against. We have to understand that God is prophesying against His people here. So it's a book written against, or a prophecy written against Samaria and Jerusalem. It's a book written during the reign of three different kings. So this wasn't just, I know it's a short book, but this is actually um, Micah's ministry that took place over a 56-year period. In most of that time, God's people were walking in rebellion to Micah's message. They were not repenting. They were not believing. They continued on in their sin. But the most important aspect of this book, or this prophecy, is that this is God's word to God's people. So unlike his contemporaries, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, and Nahum, uh, who begin their messages by putting the accent on the prophet, or the accent on the message itself, Micah puts the accent on the divine origin of his message. This is the word of the Lord. Listen. Listen. This is not Micah on his soapbox fed up with how Judah is choosing to live their life and he's angry and he's just going to rain down curses upon them. This is the, the Lord that has a word for his people And Micah is chosen to proclaim it. So Micah's name meaning, meaning who is like God, helps helps us to understand the direction that he is going with his message. Now, my name actually means Kevin. My name's Kevin. And my name actually means kind and handsome. Okay, I I know. Why are you laughing? Um, (laughs) 
but my, my parents did not have that in mind. They weren't like, this is going to be a kind and handsome man uh, when they named me. And while, while that meaning is very true, um, it's not helpful to you in any way, shape, or form. It doesn't help you. But Micah's name, on the other hand, was helpful. His name forced God's people to reckon with what they thought about God. So anytime Micah stood before the people, the question that was on everybody's mind was, who is like your God? That's what Micah was proclaiming over and over again to God's people. Who is like your God? Is there another God in this world that is, that is intimately involved with, cre- with His creation as your God is? Is there another God in all the universe that cares as deeply about humanity as the God of the Bible? Is there? If, if there is, name Him, Micah is saying. This is why the psalmist in Psalm chapter 8 asked the question of God. He's praying to God and he asks the question to God uh, because he's so overwhelmed at this unbelievable thought that he asked the question, What is man that you are mindful of him? What is man, what, and the son of man that you care for him? Who are we that the God of the universe would enter into our world? Why do you even think about us? And this is the message that God's people need to hear. To know that there is no other God like their God. And so for 56 years, Micah beats this message into their heads. Why? Well, back to our friend A.W. Tozer, who highlights why a labor like this is so vital in his chapter entitled, Why We Must Think Rightly About God, the God of the Bible. And he says the reason we must think rightly about God is because low views of God destroy the gospel for all who hold them. Low views of God destroy the gospel for all who hold them. And understanding our second point, that God is a God who judges His people, is vital to ridding yourself of a low view of God that will possibly one day destroy the gospel for you if you continue to hold on to it. So from the outset, in this second point, we have to understand that God does not judge His people out of any sort of malice or sense of revenge or assumption. I think sometimes we like to assume, especially in our kind of like our mask-wearing days, if someone doesn't have a mask on, that they don't care about your grandmother for some reason, so we assume and we place judgment on them. God does not judge like this. That's how we judge people. That's not how God judges people. So believe it or not, God actually judges His people out of His love for them. God disciplines us because He loves us because uh, as believers we are sons and daughters of God. And so this theme of judgment is the theme that dominates Micah's message. The book is actually structured around three series of prophecies of judgment. So we have Uh, and they're all split up. This is how the, 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 the book is organized. In chapters 1 and 2, you have the first prophecy of judgment. So we'll look at that 
this week and next week. And then you have chapters 3 through 5 is the second prophecy of judgment. And then chapters 6 and 7 are the final prophecy of judgment. And the way that you can kind of see it structured, and if you're like me and you like to highlight words and underline words in your Bible, is each of the sections begins with the word hear or listen. And in each of these three sections, God is confronting His people with their sin. Because He wants them to hear that their view of Him is distorted and wrong. That their view of Him is actually uh, pushing them away from Him and not drawing Him close. So what they're doing is that they are abusing the fact that they're, God, that they're God's people, which causes them to think that God will never do them harm. That God would never judge them as He judges the nations. Yet verses 2 through 7 tell us otherwise. In verse 2, God immediately lets them know, listen up, He essentially says. Listen to me. I am against you right now. I am against you right now and not your enemy. And then in verses 3 through 4, Micah goes on to paint a word picture for us that helps us to begin to understand what it feels like to have God against you in judgment. Let me read those verses for us again in verses 3 through 4. Micah writes, For behold, the Lord is coming out of His place. So the Lord is leaving heaven. The Lord is coming out of His place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under Him. And the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. This is what happens when God will come out of heaven and judge His people. The mountains will melt. The valleys will split open. Think, uh, think uh, erupting volcanoes and earthquakes, if that helps you. The New Testament scholar Bruce uh, Walkey said this, he says, uh, when the Lord pours down the fertile valleys into deep canyons, like cascading waterfalls down a rocky slope, then man's place of life and hope is entirely removed from him. When God begins to move towards you in judgment, essentially, all of life is knocked off kilter. Everything comes off the rails when God stands in judgment against you. Do you sense that today in your life? Is your life off kilter? Are you, are you coming off the rails? Is everything around you not seeming to be working out the way in which you intended it to work out? If so... Have you ever thought that God may be judging you? I know that's a sobering question. But have you ever thought about that? Why would He be judging you if that's the case? Maybe you need to ask yourself that question. But verse 5 of Micah's prophecy here in chapter 1 tells us 
why all of this is happening to God's people. For the transgression of Jacob. For the sin of his people. That's why God is judging them. For their unrepentant sin. Literally, uh, rebellion. Which means in Hebrew, a willful criminal infraction of covenant. They have knowingly infringed upon the covenant God has made with them. So essentially, they've broken all of the commandments. All of the commandments they've broken. All ten of them. They've begun to destroy the gospel in their life. And this is the trajectory they are on unless they turn and repent. And so we learn in our final point that God, even though He stands in judgment, even though we we see this kind of sobering reality of the God who is leaving His throne in heaven, and as He places His foot upon the earth, the mountains melt and the earth quakes. Even though all of that is happening, God doesn't break His covenant with His people. This is not God coming down upon His people and saying, that's it. I've had it up to here with you guys. We're done. I'm going to find a new people to have a new relationship with. No, God is a God who actually calls His people back. Because He calls His people back to change. Now we have to quickly recognize in our final point that God does not judge His people for nothing. God is not um, a God who is playing psychological games with us. He's not a God who, is, who toys with our emotional state. That is not the God of the Bible. He's a God who judges us out of love for us because He wants us back. And the way he does this to his people here in Micah chapter 1 is seen in verses 8 through 16 in this expression of grief. So essentially what God is doing is he is forcing his people out of the complacency that they have placed themselves in. So he is, he is removing all sorts of comfort and security away from, him, away from them that, that can only leave them grieving for the life that they once lived, for the relationship that they once had with their God. We see it in Micah's language first in verse 8. So he kind of brackets this, um, this, uh, this, this complacency and their grief and all that between verses 8 and verse 16. So in verse 8, Micah says, For this I will lament and wail. And just a quick side note here. Uh, one note that a commentator said was that the reason why Micah's um, um, prophetic ministry amongst God's people was fruitful was because he was a prophet who didn't just kind of stand on the outside and, and look at God's people and say, look, you guys are terrible. These, all these things are going to happen. You need to do this. You need to repent in this way. Micah actually entered into the repentance with them. Micah, Micah didn't say, look, I'm innocent of this. My hands are clean. Micah said, no, I'm just as guilty as you are. And he says this here in verse 8. He says, this is what I'm going to do. I will lament and wail. 
I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. And then again in verse 16, he calls God's people to do the same thing. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle for they shall go from you into exile. He's letting them know how they should feel about their sin. As I've, as I've gotten older, uh, uh, already I've learned uh, uh, new things about myself um, with, with thanks to my wife and kids. But, um, but I, I've learned recently that I'm not one who likes to hang around in uh, negative emotions or feelings. So it's uh, based on my personality. I, I will immediately find that that happiness somewhere, somehow, to get away from these negative emotions. So, so I'll avoid them at all costs, so that I don't have to experience pain. But Micah doesn't give God's people that option. He doesn't make these broad brushstrokes and say, look, this is the sins of the nations. You know, if you feel like you have entered into this sin, then yes, you need to repent and believe the gospel again. But if you, if you, if you don't feel that way, then you're okay. Micah doesn't do that. Instead, he moves in really close. He makes it very specific. And the way that he does that is in verses 10 through 15 with all of those names of, 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 of cities and towns that, that are hard to pronounce. But these are all little towns where Micah grew up. So it would be like me saying, listen, uh, Augusta. Listen, Martinez. Listen, Evans. And moving even into those smaller communities of those larger cities. Micah is honing in, and there is no way to avoid the feeling of grief and sadness and lament that he's calling them to. And to make this even more real, Micah uses the names and reputations of the towns to let them know how they'll feel about this. So you have in verse 11, you have a city uh, like Shafir, Shafir was known for its beauty. Known for its beauty. And Micah says to them, you will no longer be known for your beauty. Actually, you'll be known to be a city full of nakedness and shame. And then in verse 15, a city like uh, Mirshah, known as a conquest town. Uh, this is the town that you would call upon if you wanted a battle won you would call on Mershah. And now this town, when God judges them, will be known as a town that is conquered. No longer a conquest town. So basically what Micah is saying to them is the way you've perceived God to be, the way you've expected God to act, is fundamentally backwards. I've used this formula before. It's not, it's not, it's not an original Kevin here. I, I took it from somebody else. But it, it goes like this. Stated belief plus actual practice equals actual belief. Stated belief plus actual practice equals actual belief. 
So while God's people state that they believe in the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, their actual practice, the way they live their life, says the complete opposite. So God will do to them the opposite of what they've been used to. Notice that everything about chapter 1 is a radical challenge to their idea of God. Everything. When they first heard, when God's people first heard the message uh, that Micah had for them, they were in shock. This is not what they were used to. And and the reason why they were in, in shock is because when they thought of God... Judgment against them was not in their category of attributes. And this led them to believe falsely that they were okay. That they could live however they pleased and that God would still care for them in the way that He always has. And that they could go on living complacent lives only looking to God when useful to them. And I wonder if we we share in some of the same complacency in our own posture towards God. Does this God described in chapter 1 describe the God you say you believe in? I hear people say that all the time. I believe in God. Does it describe the God that you pray to? Does it describe the God that you talk about with others. Because if it doesn't, you don't have the full picture of who God really is. Because if you don't understand Him as a God of judgment, if that's a a, a negative reality about God that you like to avoid and you only want to concentrate on the fact that God is a God of love, we hear that a lot. That God is a God of grace, we hear that a lot. That God is, you know, in holy in all of the ways that He does. If we if we don't understand Him as judge, you will not understand Him as a God of love. You will not understand Him as a God of grace. And you will not see Him as a God who is holy in all of His ways. And you definitely will not understand why this God who judges would ever send His only Son into this world to save sinners. You'll never understand the Gospel. But all of this together lets us know that God does love His people. That God does call us to change, and He makes a way for us to do that in Christ. Now, you may be thinking at this point that Micah is going to be a bummer. That this is no way to enter into the Advent season, which is supposed to be celebratory and, you know, lights and Christmas carols. And especially, this is no way to end uh, the year 2020 that has already been uh, terrible. And so we'll end on a message of judgment. But let me just say that Micah is a book that not only offers judgment, but also the hope of redemption. Micah would not be a good prophet if he only ended on judgment. 
So let me prove this to you by reading again the historical account that Micah's prophecy had not only on a king, but on his entire kingdom which was the kingdom of God's people. And if you want background information on where Micah is coming from and what impact his, his ministry had upon God's people, go back and read this, um, this today, 2 Kings chapter 18 through 20. And you'll see that. But I just want to read for us what um, I read earlier in the Scripture reading. Just a few verses from there. Just to give you a picture of the fruit that Micah's ministry had. In 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 3, and I'll just read. And this is talking about King Hezekiah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. So he broke down every single idol, everything that would draw his people away from God, the God of the Bible. Uh, King Hezekiah broke them all down. He ridded the land of them. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. So what we see here is that through Micah's preaching, the people do repent. Just a little spoiler there. The people do repent and spiritual renewal, revival was had during the reign of King Hezekiah. But this was after, this was after many years of labor on Micah's part. That the people finally do repent and God relents in his judgment. Jeremiah, the prophet who ministered 100 years after Micah, reminded Jerusalem about this time of Micah's preaching to show them that even in the midst of their now new judgment that Jeremiah was proclaiming to them, that there was hope. And so he points back to Micah's ministry amongst God's people 100 years later. And this is what he says to his people. Jeremiah says, Micah of Morsheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah king of Judah and said to all the people of Judah, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Did Hezekiah king of Judah and all Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had pronounced against them? So the answer is yes. Or, or no, he did not put, they did not put Micah to death. Uh, and yes, God did all of those things amongst God's people. God's people. And then Jeremiah says, but we are about to bring great disaster upon ourselves. We need to remember this God who not only judges, but also forgives. And he is a God who relentlessly pursues His people to bring them back to Himself. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you 
that while this uh, while the reality that you are a God who judges is hard to hear. It's hard to it's hard to kind of fathom uh, after even after coming out of the Gospel of Mark or even coming in here maybe with presuppositions about who you are um, that may not necessarily line up with a God of judgment. God, thank you that you are a God uh, who does judge us because you love us. That you are a God who doesn't uh, pull away from us or break your covenant with us, but that you are a God who, who pursues us relentlessly. And so God, we know that when, you, when, you're, when your hand is, is, is crushing us in judgment, that at the same time we remember that it is your hand that is doing it. A hand that is, that is the hand of a loving, heavenly Father who, uh, who calls us back to Himself. And so we pray all of these things uh, in the name of Christ. Amen.